Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. In this episode with Greg Gravy Coker, I've broken one of my fundamental rules for the podcast. As anybody who's been following me for any period of time will appreciate, I try to get guests on who haven't had their story told before, or I try to tell stories that haven't been told very well before. With Gravy, his story has definitely been told before, but it's such a good story, I wanted to have it on my podcast. Two reasons for that. Firstly, because I wanted my listeners to be able to hear it if they haven't already. But secondly, and probably the main reason, was that it's such a good story, I wanted to have the opportunity to speak to Gravy myself and, and ask my own questions. Anyway, the reason I'm recording this special intro is not to talk about that really, but to ask you to support Gravy in his endeavours to raise money for some charitable organisations that he supports in the US. He's written a couple of books, Death Waits in the Dark, which is, I think, an autobiographical account. I haven't read it yet, but I've seen it's got great reviews. And that's about his time uh, flying special operations helicopters. And V is for Veteran, which is a kid's book that he's written with his daughter. If you're listening to this on the podcast, head over to YouTube, because the description will contain links where you can buy both of those publications. He sends 100% of the proceeds he makes from those book sales to these non-profit organizations. So you would really be helping others if you were to support him and buy those books. Anyway, as always, I'd ask you subscribe. I definitely would ask you to like, share, and please do leave comments uh, because that helps to get this video pushed up the YouTube algorithms, get it to a greater audience, get the story out to a wider number of people. Enjoy. Gravy, welcome to 10% True. Thanks for coming on the channel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess it's afternoon there. It but, is. Uh, we'll, we'll work on your yeah. timeline there. Good morning, yeah, it is. Yes. Gravy, this is the first time I've had an, an Army Aviation uh, helicopter pilot on the podcast. So I'm very excited to hear about helicopters and flying helicopters in, the, in a tactical way from you. One of the reasons that I originally asked if you would be a guest on the channel is because I heard about your incredible story in Iraq 2004, flying an MH6, being downed, and then joining the ground forces to go after the people that had shot, it, shot at you or shot you down. And that's the ultimate objective today, is to get to the point where you retell that story. I'm really excited to hear about that. But before we do that, can I just ask, why did you become an Army aviator, an Army helicopter pilot? What drew you to oh, that? 
Oh goodness. Well, I, and just, you said MH, I was in an AH. Okay. Six, not an MH six. I mean, we, I love the MH guys, but their skirts were gun guys. So just to clarify. <laughs> well, maybe you can describe that a little bit later, what the differences between those two. Yeah. Are. Yes, you bet. Well, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, yeah. Why did I become an army aviator? Well, it goes, <clears throat> I was, a child of the sixties and seventies and of course watched the Vietnam war on, on TV. And it was the helicopter war And this, you know, that's what I put everything back on is that I just can't became infatuated, I guess, with helicopters and, uh, you know, the Hueys and loaches and Cobras. And, and then my father, he was in the military and, I just always had an ambition to fly. I always, you know, wanted to be a fighter pilot or helicopter pilot, whatever the case. So my only vehicle at the time was the army and because they're a warrant officer program and you don't have to have a college degree to fly helicopters in the army. So one of their, one of their advertisements is high school to flight school. And I mean, when I went through flight school, we had, two young guys that were literally 18 years old, right out of high school in army flight school at Fort Rucker. So <clears throat> that's, that was my start. I enlisted. Uh, I was stationed at the 101st at 327th infantry for almost three years. And then I applied for flight school and somehow got accepted. I don't know why to this day, but, uh, I guess I met the standards. Yeah. And that started my career. And I was, I, I picked guns in flight school because I wanted to fly Cobras or Apaches or whatever the case. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how I got the start. So you were, and you can tell by the fact I can barely even say the words army uh, aviator, helicopter uh, um, yes. pilot. That is the correct term, isn't it? Army, army aviator. Army aviator, okay, yes. So, so you can tell I don't really know much about this, but so you spent then three years as a soldier before you were allowed to apply or um, before you decided to? No, I actually, I started the process right after basic training once I got to the 101st because that was my, that was my goal. And it, it just takes, it takes time. And my father had recommended that I enlist in the army to, you know, to, to learn the army and to see the army and, you know, being an infantry guy, you get, you, you get, you get the, the good look at, you know, what the army is all about. So, and I do recall we were out on a big <clears throat> exercise one time and it was early, early in the morning and we, we were out on patrol. I was on a recce team we came up on this clearing and here's these two cobras sitting there. They had landed and, you know, were getting ready to, to do the exercise. So we walked up, talked to those guys and they had big mustaches, and, you know, they, they were, I was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to do right here. And, and he looked at me and he says, Oh, by the way, it's air conditioned. <laughs> oh, well, you know, here we are with hundred pound rucks humping up and down the mountains of Western Arkansas. And that's like, okay, this is me right here. It's got big guns and 
missiles and rockets. So, yeah. Were those guys then, presumably there was a, a strong um, presence in the ranks of guys who had come back from Vietnam, who, who had combat experience. Right. Obviously, the role of of transporting troops into a combat zone or being a, a gunship pilot was really extremely dangerous. I mean, it was dangerous for everybody there. It's not to suggest that there was a special category of danger for you guys, but, but it was right. exceptionally dangerous. Did that occur to you were you young enough you weren't thinking about that kind of thing or had you actually weighed up no i i yeah when you're well i i've never really thought about danger actually i'm a i'm a very religious man and uh you know i i believe in god and christ and i just i knew that you know this was my path and i didn't question it so you know, I, I was, if something happened, it happened. I'm, I'm good. So I know where I'm going. And, uh, no, that, I think that's kind of a draw, you know, the danger and the adrenaline and adrenaline's the best drug on the planet, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, I read so many incredible stories about the guys in Vietnam and, and I mean, it was, they, looking back, that was just crazy. Some of the things they did, no night vision goggles, you know, flying at night. And, but, you know, that, that was their job. That was their mission. And they were highly de- dedicated professionals. And they, you know, their whole intent was to get the job done for the ground force and to support them. So, yeah, it's, I have so much respect for those fellas. And, uh, you know, there's Q Mills, he's written book and yeah several other guys so it, it was fun to talk with them and and to learn from them because they you know they figured it out for us for my generation so you know we're we we do a better job for our guys so yeah what was the instructional style like then and, and how did you find helicopters presumably you had no prior flying experience no, none so None. what was it what was it like to learn helicopters and, and and how were those guys were they sort of old school in the way they treated you were they quite strict disciplinarians was it casual what did it look like it, it was a little of both all my instructor pilots my ips were vietnam vets and they were retirees that stayed at fort rucker alabama as contractors so they like they try to keep you know that knowledge and that experience in house and i mean gosh those they're the best aviators on the planet as far as i'm concerned at that time i went to flight school in 89 so yeah we i we had many many vietnam vets you know flying us uh casual yes at times but you know they've got extremely high standards and it's it's somewhat dangerous so yeah they they get on to us when we screwed up so yeah they're just awesome guys awesome fellas Another thing that's unusual for me when I'm interviewing a guest and unusual particularly then with you today is that normally I'm talking to somebody about experiences I don't I don't have any experience of, but I actually have a helicopter pilot's license. I, I got a private pilot's license about oh. 20, 20 years ago. And one of the things that they, they teach you, we, I flew little R22s and, and I did a little bit of 206 time and used 500. But with the teetering head R22, they talked to you about mass bumping. And mm-hmm. presumably you were flying UH-1s um, and that kind of thing. How do, Can you describe 
you've just said it was dangerous. Can you describe some of the things about it that are dangerous, maybe talking about things like mass bumping and explain a little about how you fly tactically and what those, what that brings in terms of danger? Sure. They, and they teach us in, and that's a semi-rigid rotor system. So you have two types of rotor systems. You have a semi-rigid, which like the Cobra, the Huey, the Robinson, it, you know, that, that rotor kind of sits on that mass and it's just, it teeters. So that's a semi-rigid and a rigid rotor system like the MD 500, the Little Birds, the Blackhawks, the Apaches. So uh, the Puma, the, yeah, I was trying to think of, you know, some of the helos that you guys fly. But so in that, in a semi-rigid rotor system, you cannot pull a negative G or unload the rotor system. If you do that rotor, it'll bump and it just snaps the mast off when you unload the rotor. So if I say, for instance, I want to do a bump and then a pushover. So what they taught us in Cobras, and you can do it, but you got to understand, you know, the aerodynamics and what can occur during a mass bump. And I actually had a very serious mass bump one time. Luckily, it was a brand new mask, just had come out of maintenance and it didn't break off. Wow. I I was in Korea flying cobras and had to land and got out. And I mean, I was I was like, oh goodness, <laughs> this is not bad. This is bad. I'm gonna get in trouble. And I wasn't flying. The other guy was flying. He made a bad mistake. But the mast actually had dents on both sides of it. When the I'd called the maintenance, called back to our base and maintenance guy flew out, old Vietnam vet. And then of course he get pops the door on the Cobra and gets out smoking cigarette <laughs> as back in the day. And, uh, so yeah, you, <clears throat> what you have to do is you, it's all technique and how you fly the aircraft. So in a Cobra or a Robinson, something with a semi-rigid rotor system, you have to constantly keep that rotor system loaded. So if I were to come up bump, what I'd have to do is turn to keep the, the rotor loaded and then nose it, you know, nose it down. Whereas in like a little bird, I can just bump, I can pull all the negative G's I want to because of that, that different style of rotor system and the way it's engineered. So that's kind of the difference layman's terms of semi-rigid and, and uh, a rigid rotor system. Were you uh, flying, so, so from a tactical point of view, then flying helicopters, mass bumping is an issue. Um, what about VRS, uh, that, that kind of thing? Are there, are there other things where you're, you know, where you're maybe going to go too fast and the airflow then imbalances over the rotor disc? Are you, I guess what I'm asking really is, are you, when you talk to guys who fly things like F-15s and F-16s, they're pretty much carefree. They, they do what they want with the aircraft, pretty much. They can't hover but they can't, (laughs) (laughs) but but when you're flying a helicopter tactically, are you having to really give a lot of consideration and brain bites to what you're doing with the aircraft? Yes, absolutely. And and there's a lot of outside environmental factors that you in part of your pre-mission planning and your planning, your performance planning for that aircraft. So VRS, I assume you're talking about blade stall. Mm. So yes, you have to, especially as you go up in altitude, because the air gets thinner, we're talking temperatures, things like that affect the airflow of that rotor blade. So, and I've, 
I've been in Bladestall before up and doing mountain flying. So you have a very, very small, we call it a bucket. So it's an airspeed in which you have to fly. If you get too slow, you don't have enough power or you run out of power. If you get too fast, you get into Bladestall. So there's, there's about a 10 to 15 knot window that you have to stay in or you're going to get in trouble. So, but as a, you know, as you gain experience and experience, you'll, you know, I could say, okay, I'm getting into blade stall. I need to slow down. You know, maybe I was doing 72 knots and my max airspeed was 68 knots for that altitude. I'm talking 10,000, 12,000 feet, you know, up in the mountains. So, yeah, we have to, that's all part of our pre-mission planning. And, you know, we look at temperatures, altitudes, density, altitudes, pressure, altitudes, winds turbulence you know so all those things have to have to be factored in and considered that to, to get to a point then gravy where you're a um qualified i guess a mission qualified army aviator helicopter pilot mm-hmm. how much training do you go through then how and how much of this stuff you're talking about do you build an understanding and experience with on a unit versus in the training syllabus Sure. And in, I'll, I'll refer to it as big army. So there's, you know, big army aviation. Then you have the 160th special operations aviation regiment. And as you begin as a young aviator, so you're, you'll fly with an instructor pilot as a, you know, brand new junior and you have readiness level progression. (coughs) Oh, pardon me. And so you'll fly with, with a, a, uh, instructor pilot probably for, Oh goodness, man, I'm trying to think back. Well, here's, here's an example. So I get to Korea, I'm flying for a 517 cab in an H one Cobra brand new W one. It's my first duty station as an attack helicopter pilot. So I fly with an IP and you start going through, you learn, you know, all terrains and pinnacle landings, confined area landings, different techniques for getting into a firing position for the Cobra and just a lot of flying. So you learn your limits, which at that point you don't really have any. So you, you, you know, you remember, and they say that, the most dangerous pilot is between 400 and 600 hours Mm. because that's where you're testing the machine. You're testing yourself and you do something and you say, Oh, let's not do that again. So yeah, the things that don't kill us make us stronger. Right. (laughs) So, so I flew uh, at, I was at 23.5 hours of flying with an instructor pilot. So at that point, my IP put me up. Well, he recommended me for pilot in command. And I'm thinking, now, wait a minute. I just got out of flight school and I have, you know, 23 and a half hours in country and you're putting me up for pilot in command. No. <laughs> and he goes, no, you're, you're ready. But I, I was, you know, I just dove into studying and, and the books and, you know, learning the aircraft. I'd fly every chance I had with like a maintenance pilot. He'd do maintenance test flights. 
So I'd go, you know, jump in the seat with him and because you learn that way. So my IP, uh, Kevin Detlison, they call him the leopard, great, great army attack helicopter pilot and instructor pilot. So my commander, he came to me and he says, Hey, Kevin put you up for a PIC ride, a pilot and command check ride. And he says, I'm, you know, I concur. I'm, I'm going to sign off on it. So, but the minimum you had to have in country in Korea was 25 hours to become a PIC, a pilot in command. Nobody had ever heard of a W1 becoming a pilot in command at 25 hours <laughs> right out of flight school. So that paperwork went up to eighth army, which was the overall command and the, the standardization instructor pilot for eighth army saw this paperwork and he was a W four, you know, an old crusty W four Vietnam vet. And he says, well, I, I'm going to go give this young W one his check ride. <laughs> so, I mean, he's the senior aviator in that country. And I was like, Oh Lord, man, I'm just, you know, I'm not ready for this. And my, and Kevin Key says, no, you are, you are, you're ready for this. And, and they needed PICs, piloting commands. We had a real world mission there. We were the most Northern deployed aviation unit in the world, close to the, the, uh, border there in Korea. And we flew the border, you know, that was our mission. So Mr. Manajesic, they called him the hammer. He was my, my instructor pilot that gave him my check ride. Check ride lasted like three days. I mean, we spent hours, you know, talking about emergency procedures and weapon systems. And we'd go out to the aircraft and he's like, okay, Greg, let's, let's be a drop of oil today in the hydraulic system. So I had to explain to him, you know, every, and there's electrical systems, of course, weapon systems, and you had to be an expert in all those and know them. <clears throat> so long story short, I took my check ride with him and I passed it. And, and it was 1.5 hours. So that gave me 25 hours. So by regulation, I met the standard and I was a brand new pilot in command. <laughs> Stared wow. to death. You know, I, I was in charge of that helicopter. So, but yeah, it, it, and it's good, you know, to put, put guys out there to challenge them and, and yeah, it just, it's just the standards are high as a gun guy. And, uh, cause we have to know more than everybody else because we have weapon systems. That's really interesting, a really interesting set of observations, isn't it? You, so you, you talked about the, that sort of zone of, complacency i think sometimes in civilian aviation it's called about in terms of how many hours you get and you get that number of hours and then you start thinking well i kind of know what i'm doing and then you as you say you make mistakes and hopefully they don't kill you but and, and then sure. you've got the academic side of things learning and understanding the aircraft um, Airspace, but, all those things but but not really the experience to make uh, judgment calls i guess then and as, as a, an attack pilot then actually shooting stuff that becomes even more important i suppose what what do, do you think that there was something within you that meant you were naturally good at this stuff, the academia, the study, the uh, application of what you'd learned in the aircraft, the ability to fly the aircraft. Were there things that you were struggling with that were difficult that you had to overcome or did this all come quite naturally to you? That's a great question. And naturally, no, I don't, 
I don't think anything comes naturally. I think it comes from dedication and hard work and just, just don't ever quit ever, ever quit. That's my rule. But, and everybody's different. It just, you know, I wanted to do well and I had found my home. I just, I absolutely love the army. I love flying and I wanted to be the best, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. So I worked hard and, and studied and read and flew every chance I got. And that's how you learn is to, you know, get in that helicopter. And I mean, I've had, when I was in Korea, we had a dual hydraulics failure, of course, I had the mass bump and, you know, just some little things that uh, one day we were coming back and the pedals were, you know, they, they just didn't seem right when I was trying to adjust my yaw in the aircraft and we landed <clears throat> and it had, it was some type of a wire had wrapped around the pitch control links of my tail rotor and had actually bent the, I mean, I was almost at a, at a fixed tail rotor situation. And I, you know, I get out, I look, cause you post flight your aircraft after you land to check for any damages or leaks or whatever. Yeah. I found that wire wrapped around there and I was like, Holy cow, man, <laughs> look at this. So that was kind of my, you know, as a, as a young aviator, it was a good intro to. Did you then at this point, having been through these experiences, did you start to think about mortality? I mean, you've explained that you're, you, you're, you have your faith and you know where you're going, but, but as you get older and as you see more things and as you build more hours, are you starting to think more about what can go wrong? Absolutely. You do. And there's, I know you may have heard the saying there's old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots. <laughs> so, and I, I had another IP. <clears throat> oh, I can't recall now what it, it's a saying. It says, uh, I'll, I'll think of it. <clears throat> I'll think of it, but yeah, you, 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 you know, you gain that knowledge and you gain that experience and you see, accidents or incidents that take place. So it's all part of the learning process. So you, you take that information and, you know, and do the best you can do. And, and the army and all, you know, military aviation, they're very good at, at investigating incidents and accidents and, you know, lessons learned by it and found. So you take, take that education to, you know, make yourself a better aviator better pilot i think that answers your question it does yeah you you said a few minutes ago gravy that you were interested in being the best so what Mm -hmm. what were you thinking of career-wise then at this point you're in career you're on your first assignment youngest pic are you already setting your sights on the next objective yes sir and of course the apache was just coming on board and in the army in 1990 and 91 and, you know, Cobras were going to be phased out. So that was my next quest, I guess. And, you know, I, and I had orders to come back to the U S doing Apache transition and then go to the 101st and fly Apaches there with at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Cody and uh, the expect no mercy battalion. So, 
yeah, that, that was what I set my sights on. And, and again, I, you know, I worked hard in Korea. We have a top gun competition and I won the top gun competition that year I was there in Korea. So I was very proud of that. And then I won it two years in the Apache. I won the top gun competition there at the hundred first. And, uh, but yeah, it just, it just takes hard work and dedication. So it, it's, I'm no different than anybody else. And, you know, we all come from, and it's interesting that, you know, we all come from these different places all over the country to this one spot to, you know, fly gunships or fly lift or to, you know, wh whatever blows your skirt up. And, uh, but it, it's interesting. And, and I will touch on this lefty. I'm a lefty, but I never met more left-handed people than I have in army aviation. It, it's really interesting. And I, at the one sixtieth, we have psych psychologist therapists there at the compound. And I would tease them all the time. I, I would say, Hey doc, you need to study this. <laughs> he was like, no, we're not studying you, you know, B company gun guys. <laughs> no, we're here for all the rest of the regiment. We already know you guys are crazy, so we don't mess with you, but yeah, it, it was really cool. All the, at one time, you know, there were over 50% of us were left-handed and I think only 6% of the world's left-handed. So, I mean, it's gotta be something with that right brain, you know, left eye dominance or something like that. But yeah, so that, you know, I just, I wanted to work hard and of course be an instructor pilot one day and, and, uh, and I got, I got to Campbell and I, I knew about the unit, the 160th, but you know, nobody ever spoke about it back then, or they didn't exist or, you know, stop looking at those little black helicopters. When I was a young enlisted guy, we were, we were sitting out, out back. And this is like, I don't know, 87, 88. And we just come out of the field, you know, infantry unit, we're cleaning weapons. And, and I see these four little birds, you know, they come flying by and I'm, I'm looking at them. My platoon sergeant, he looks, he says, Coker, get back to work. I was like, oh, I was just checking out the aircraft. He says, those don't exist. <laughs> I said, I said, I'm going to fly one of those one day. And he's like, shut up. You're stupid. You I wish I could find that guy today. <laughs> Maybe he'll listen in. He's like, man, he was one of my privates. And you know, he told me he was going to fly those little black helicopters one day, but yeah, so that's kind of where I'd set my sights. So I just, yeah, go ahead. Just just briefly before we talk about that, the the um, the one sixtieth. Then, could you describe a little bit about the Apache in terms of <clears throat> how much of an improvement was it over the Cobra? What was you know what 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 were its capabilities in comparison to the the Cobra? Because the Cobra is still flown today. I mean, the H one Z, H one W, and the Marine Corps still operate it. Yeah, so it's much more advanced. Got better op, um, avionic systems and, and, and weapon systems, but uh, as a platform, seems to have endured. Um, but what did you think of the Apache then? Yeah, at the time, man, it was. I mean, it was just it's the latest and greatest technology, you know, in the world. And man, what a great helicopter! And it was fully aerobatic because it had a it had an articulated rudder system, you know. But yeah, the technology advances. Um, of course, you carry a hellfire system. You can carry more ammo, more fuel, longer time on station, 
it was a heck of a lot faster than the Cobra. So yeah, it was, it, it was just fun to fly. And, and of course you had the, uh, you had the FLIR, so you had to learn in the Apache course how to fly with that little, you know, monocle stuck on your on your eye, which was just. And I'd flown quite a bit of night vision goggle when I was in Korea, but yeah, that that was, and, and when you learn to fly at your first few flights, it's called flying in the bag. So you're in the aircraft, and you're you're in the back seat, but you're completely blacked out. So you have to fly. It's called the HDU helmet, helmet display unit or helmet mounted display. So yeah, you, you have to fly with that thing. And it, it's, Oh, it was just, it was hilarious. I mean, guys, and you're sitting in the stands watching your stick, buddy, you know, fly the wrong direction in the pattern. And, you know, and you know, the IPs are sitting up there just laughing. It's like, okay, you know, enough, enough. I have the controls. And you're just, you're trying to figure out because you, all your symbology is in this little bitty, you know, one inch by two inch piece of glass in front of your eye. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. It was a little bit scary at times. And, you know, you just, I just didn't want to crash. That's like, that's, <laughs> I just want to get off the ground so I could get in the air and not crash. And I'm good, but no, you, you become very, very proficient. And then for me, as far as I'm concerned, I just, I had the best instructor pilots and mentors and leaders in my early, early time as an aviator. Uh, Tim Roderick, Ron Thompson, um, Woody Jones, Kevin Detlison, just, yeah, they, they, uh, they were just great dudes and, you know, mentored me the way I should have been mentored. Yeah. They, and they're good. They're the best as far as I'm concerned. So that's, those are the guys that I wanted to emulate and take after. And, and I learned from them. Did, so, yeah. did you become an instructor then before you moved on from what did you say it was 101st that you're in? No, I, I didn't become an instructor pilot. I just didn't have enough time because it went my year in Korea, two and a half years at, at the 101st flying Apaches. And then I assessed, I put in my, you know, put in my paperwork to assess for the unit. And, you know, everybody says, Hey, this, the best go here and, we think you should go try out. So I'm like, Roger that. I'll go try it. What was that process like then? The assessment was, it's just a gut check and a heart check. And yeah, it's hard. It's tough. And, you know, a lot of guys have failed. Many have tried, many have failed. Very few make it. And the standards are extremely high and it's very stressful. It's very physical. Uh, any assessment for special operations units is tough. It's hard, you know, Rangers, special forces, Delta SAS, you know, one sixtieth, whatever the case it's, but you just can't quit. That's, that's the end state. I mean, I almost drowned one day doing our swim tests and I, I blacked out. And last thing I remember seeing was the safety divers hand coming to reach. <laughs> that was all next thing I was up on the pool deck. They were, pumping water out of me, but I was not going to quit. <laughs> I was not going to quit. I was like, well, I know they'll come get me. So that, and that's the bottom line, you know, they, you know, your buddies are coming to get you. And, you know, I was in a really bad situation there one day and I, I was like, I'm good, man. I know my bros are coming to get me. Mm. So 
it's all good. It's all good. Did they assess your flying or were they going simply on word of mouth? Yeah, it's, it's a process. So the standards used to be, you had to have a minimum of a thousand hours of flight time and a minimum of a hundred hours of night vision goggles. So when I submitted my application, it's your resume that you submit to the one sixtieth. They have a review board. They, you know, it's a resume. It's, okay. What has this guy done? Where's he been? How many, you know, how much flight time does he have? I didn't, I only had like 600 and change hours of flight time, but I had over 200 hours of night vision goggle, which was just unheard of back then. So they, they weighed that and took a chance on Greg Coker. I, at the time I was like the most junior guy they had ever assessed and f- flight time wise. Cause I had, I had, you know, 600 some hours and, and they wanted you to have a thousand hours of experience, but I had double the night vision goggle time that other aviators had. So that that's, you know, it's a whole man concept. So they, they took a chance on me and yeah, I, submitting my paperwork and again it takes time to put that packet together get it submitted and then and then i got a letter that says hey you're you're invited for an assessment on this time and this date so yeah that was early 93 is when i assessed i would imagine i mean my audience is is well up on these subjects but might be worth if you can briefly introducing who the 160th is and and what their mission is. Sure. It's the 160th special operations aviation regiment airborne. And they came about in 1981 after the first attempt of the hostage rescue in Iran. So the first attempt failed and it was a mix of all the services. And of course they were supporting Colonel Charlie Beckwith and Delta and that failed. So, and Colonel Beckwith's plan had always been to have army aviators flying army Delta, but it didn't occur for that. And so here comes the 160th. They pulled all the guys out of the 101st because at the time that that command knew that that's where the most experience was and they had Blackhawks and, you know, they had Cobra guys. So the unit started and then they, they did a, they planned a second attempt for the hostage rescue. President Reagan was elected and the hostages were released. So the regiment grew start. Well, then it was TF task force 160. It was just Blackhawks and AH-6s, Little Birds, and MH-6 Little Birds. The MH-6 has planks on the side of it where the customers or the operators can ride or sit, and the MH will deliver them to the target, mm-hmm. or they can fast rope out of it. And then the AH-6 is B Company, MH-6s are A Company, 1st Battalion, 160th. And the AHs we carry dual miniguns and two rocket pods. So our mission is surgical precision, close air support for special operations ground forces. And the overall mission of the 160th is to support special operations ground forces. 
So that's what we do. We have black little birds, black hawks, chinooks. So nice. we're the primary mover or carry for special operations, tier one special operations forces, so Rangers Delta. Is there um, a, a pecking order then of, of special operations forces? You, you mentioned tier one. Could you describe what those tiers mean or you know, broadly oh, yes. what they mean? Yes, sir. The, so there's a tier one and a tier two. So tier two, and we, we talk also colors. So we talk white, soft, special operations forces, and then black, soft, special operations forces. The white or tier two or green berets, uh, regular seals, a couple others. And then tier one or, you know, Delta, uh, seal team six, 22nd, you know, special operations forces like that. So our, our primary at that, at my tenure, their primary mission was tier one, you know, supporting Delta the Rangers, seal team six. Yes, sir. So that's kind of how it's broken down in layman's terms. Thanks, Gravy. Um, so, so what about the flying then? When you, when you get there, uh, do they are you going through another course, or are you going and flying what you'd normally do? But they teach you some special techniques, or you, you the the limits, or the the tolerance for risk changes. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, I went to the Little Bird, so I have to learn a new helicopter. Okay, and you learn things that you never thought you were capable of doing. And I mean, just all you fly in all environments, over water, mountains, desert, you know, snow, all types. And, and the navigation, the standards are plus or minus 30 seconds on time on target. And that's anywhere in the world. So you become an expert at navigation and it's a map a compass and a clock there's no you can't use any electronics we've got a jog map you know one to two fifty two hundred fifty thousand over one jog map and you have to fly that black line that you make on that map and you have to hit each checkpoint and then you have to be at your target plus or minus 30 seconds it's pretty basic stuff but you have to meet that standard because that's a standard that our forces live and die by and that we live and die by if we tell the customer we're going to be there at 2200 and i i talk customer because i'm still old school we couldn't say the d word or you know delta don't say that you know 160 don't say that okay whatever but yeah i still talk the customer let's say delta and uh we tell them we're going to be at that target at 2,200 hours. We're going to be there at 2,200 hours plus or minus 30 seconds. And people just, that's hard for them to grasp, you know, how, okay, I'm going to fly for three hours into, you know, bad guy country. And I'm going to hit that target at, you're going to land at, you know, 2,200 hours, but yes, that's the standard. And you have to, your whole career in that unit, you have to be able to do that. And yes, we have GPS and all sorts of other things, but, you know, and, and it's to back up our expert navigation 
I mean, I've, we, there were times in, in combat that our GPS didn't work. So, and I'm in, I'm in lead, I'm navigating a flight of, you know, 14 helicopters behind me, Blackhawk, Chinooks, Little Birds, and we're going to this target and we have to be there at zero, 200 hours while I'm on my map in the desert. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no roads. There's no, you know, nothing to navigate. It's just time, distance and heading. But as you progress as an aviator, you learn, you learn those winds, you learn, you know, the atmospheric conditions. And then, you know, you got your clock and your compass and you fly that line to ensure that you get that flight there safely and on time our target plus or minus 30 seconds because that's the standard. And there's no, there's no breaking the standard. You got to meet the standard. If you don't meet the standard, you go somewhere else. You go back to the big army. So, but yeah, it's in the beginning. So you learn first, you have to learn a new helicopter. You have to learn to navigate to their standard and it's extremely stressful. And, and our training is called green platoon. And I was there, I think it takes about seven or eight months for the little bird gun guys. And it's because we have to learn a whole new weapon systems. We have to learn to shoot the way that the unit shoots. I mean, we shoot surgical with those mini guns and rockets. I can put a rocket through a window. If I tell you that's what I'm going to do, then the ground force, they may be surrounding that building and say, Hey, we need a rocket through that door. We need a rocket through that roof. Well, that rocket has to be there because we shoot very close proximity to the friendly ground force. And the standards are extremely high for shooting in the 160th, but we shoot a lot. <laughs> we, you know, we go to the range three days a week and shoot. And, you know, shooting is a very perishable skill. It's probably the most perishable skill a human has. We use all of our senses. We use, now we're flying a helicopter and we have to shoot to that standard. If I tell you, I'm going to put minigun in that tower at 2,200 hours, my bullets are going to hit that tower at 2,200 plus or minus 30 seconds. Mm because there's a whole bunch of dudes that are depending on you to shoot that tower or shoot those guards or shoot, you know, whatever the case. So, yeah, it, it's very, very stressful. It's extremely hard. It's, I've never been so tired, hungry, stressed because when you're going in there, there are no days off. And when you're going through green platoon, you're learning these different phases, you know, first phase is navigation. So you have to be able to navigate and some guys don't make it, you know, they just, they just can't navigate. They made the assessment, but, or they figure out, Hey, this is not for me. You know, it's, I mean, I've seen guys come all the way through. I've seen guys get to a unit, a company, B company, a company, Charlie, whatever, and say, this is not for me, or they can't meet the standard. So, and, but it, it's because that, you know, they required you to perform and you have to perform the way everybody else performs to support that ground force. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good way to put it, but so you do navigation, then you do an aircraft transition and you learn to go fly the MD 530. That's what our helicopters are. They're civilian, the AH and MH six do your aircraft transition, then you start into mission training. 
So you go, that's why it takes almost a year. So you go do mountains, flying in mountains, flying over water, you know, flying in all different types of places. You do loads and you just learn, start to learn all these different, all these different new things to even, you know, usually an aviator's mid grade when they come to the one sixtieth. So a senior CW two or a junior CW three. So you're about mid career, you know, eight to 10 years in your career before you go, because you have to gain those hours and it just takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, the average army aviator probably flies 120 to 140 hours a year. So if you're, if you have to have a thousand hours just to go and night vision goggle time, it, it just takes time to get that amount of hours. So yeah, it's uh it was tough. It was hard. It's supposed to be though. What was the most challenging environment then? You talked about deserts, mountains, over the sea. What what's what's the most dangerous environment to operate in? Mountains. For me, it was mountains. Uh some guys over water because we fly, we only fly 20 feet above the water. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> You know, it, it just takes a split second to bump a cyclic or, <laughs> you know, or something to break. You're you're going in the drink. So you're going into the water. But I really enjoyed flying over water. It was just I was in my place and, you know, I, I just I loved it. It was peaceful. And, hey, we're getting ready to go shoot something, and blow some shit up. So it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. But. Yeah, the mountains for me, because there's, again, there's, you know, once you get above 6,000 feet in a helicopter, man, you just, I mean, your limits get narrower and narrower. And I've been up to 14,000 feet flying navigation routes through mountains, over mountains, and going to hit targets. And I mean, it's, it just takes a whole lot more planning. You have climb initiation points. So, you know, I know that my at this temperature and this altitude, my aircraft's capable of climbing at, you know, 400 feet per minute at, at 80 knots. So I'd have a point on the ground where I'd have to start that climb or I wouldn't make it over that mountain. And, you know, I've, we've had guys run out of airspeed and altitude and everything. And they crashed into the mountain because they didn't they didn't stick to the plan. So they made a mistake. Luckily, nobody's hurt. But yeah, flying in the mountains because your your airspeed's limited. You're and above ten thousand feet. Of course, your time's limited before you have to go on oxygen. Because ten thousand feet and above, you have to go on O2 if time limits. If you're there, you get hypoxia, and then you're <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, then you're going to get in trouble. So but yeah, for me, the mountains were they were the most challenging because if you got behind. Now you have to look forward. It's like, okay, my next checkpoint's 14 miles away, but I'm three minutes behind. And I made this decision one night on a mission in the mountains. I looked at the guy and I says, I'm not going to make my TOT, my time on target, if I stay on this route. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, we're going to climb that mountain right there. I said, go ahead and start your climb. So he, he did. We, we cut, you know, we just cut the route short and jumped across the mountain where the route picked up and I hit my target on time. So, you know, you have to, you have to continuously think, man, there's, it never stops. 
So, so with those performance limits, those margins really narrow then, are you also putting some kind of ballast in the helicopter to, to simulate having guys in the back? Or uh, would you, if you're a gunship, are you only ever going to carry, you know, sort of the guns and the rockets and the ammunition? There's no space for anybody in the back? Yeah, in the AH-6, so in the Gunbird, we don't carry any customers. We don't carry any yeah. operators. But the MH-6, yes, they would put, you know, sandbags or they'd put humans out there to, you know, to simulate or to have that weight. And, uh, yeah, we're always at max gross weight. Always, always, always. So, so, so you, you carry ammunition then in the, in the yeah. AH? To, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we put ammo cans in there and loaded up with fuel bags or, you know, whatever we needed for that mission. Yes, would, you, would you always fly two up, always uh, two pilots? Yes, always. Okay. Always two aircraft, always two pilots. You never fly a single ship anywhere. You always have a wingman in case something goes bad. So, What's the division of labor then between you and the other person in, in, the, uh, in the cockpit? The guy on the control, so the guy flying, his, his primary duties are – safety of the aircraft. So, you know, making sure that they're, they're not looking for hazards, you know, wires, trees, towers, all those types of things, flying that airspeed and the other, the other aviator, he's on the map. So he's navigating and, you know, you, I mean, I I may nav for a couple hours and then, Hey, let's, I need to take a break. And, you know, then the other guy nav navigate, and then not fly so he's he's you're on the radios listen to them and let the guy flying focus on flying because it's i mean we fly very low to the earth or to the water and so you you have and keep in mind this is all night vision goggles we don't Mm -hmm. we're night stalkers not day stalkers (laughs) so so yes it's all at night and yeah, so the, the guy not flying, you're nabbing on the map, you're checking your clock, checking your times, you know, and you'll have points along your route, like a hilltop or maybe a little town or a road intersection or something that you can judge your, your time on. But you're always checking the clock, you're doing fuel checks, you know, making sure, transferring fuel. It, it's a busy little cockpit. And that's you know, all Army or military cockpits are busy, except for the Zoomies, you know, jet guys. They just get up there, push a button sit back, smoke a cigarette, have a martini or, you know, whatever they're doing. So having a Coke <clears throat> and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a busy little cockpit. It sure is. Well, what about weapons aiming then? You, you talked about shooting rockets, being able to get it through a window or through a door. Sure. Um, is there, yeah, but you've got no sighting system in the AH-6. Uh, is it grease pencil? It's a grease pencil mark. Yes, sir. Yes. And that, that takes time when you're going through green platoon. Your last phase is you're, you learn to shoot. You just get the basics on shooting and they just, they want you in that area or that beaten zone because <clears throat> pardon me, you're going to continue training once you become a basic mission qualified aviator. So you graduate green platoon, you go to your company, B company as a gun company and you, you continue to shoot, 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 but, and your, your end goal is to become an FMQ, a fully mission qualified combat aviator that takes from 18 to 24 months to train a guy 
to get to FMQ and the FMQs are the ones that are, are ready for combat to go, to go to war. So it, it just takes a lot of time to, to learn to shoot to the standard. I shot one night, 15 meters in front of friendlies because their blocking position was being overrun. And, you know, that's where I got the call for fire. So we shoot extremely close to the ground force and they trust us because mm-hmm. we train together for years and years and years. And we know each other, you know, I know them, they know me or us and, and they know our capabilities and they're not afraid to, Hey, I need a rocket 25 meters away. You know, Roger that danger close seek cover in hot and then they'll do what they have to do. So yeah, it's, I mean, for, for us, for me, it was the safety and security of that ground force, but it's learning to shoot to the standards in which we have to abide by. And we shoot, you know, very surgical and it's a, uh, yeah, it's a grease pencil mark on the windscreen. That's our sighting system. And it, it takes a fella several months to kind of, you know, finally tune that pepper. I mean, You'll see guys will use tape measures, you know, measure, well, am I, am, am I in the right seat or the left seat? Because it's different. Your pepper, your grease pencil mark will be different. So guys will take tape measures and measure or a string. Or For me, I counted rivets up on the side of the aircraft, and then I'm left eye dominant, so I was always over the inside of the left pedal. So that's, that's my vertical, and then my horizontal was 21 rivets up, and then over, uh-huh. yeah, that was that was where my miniguns would impact it at uh, 600 meters. Were rockets and miniguns set to converge at different ranges? Yes. The, our armament personnel, we call them dogs, armament dogs, uh, best in the world. All of our enlisted and non-commissioned officers are sergeants, man. Just, I mean, just cream of the crop, best, best on the planet. And, they would bore sight the guns and rockets. They had a, a bore sight tool and tape measures and, and it, it gets them pretty close to, you know, where they, where they meet out in front point A and point of impact is mm-hmm. what it would be. So three to 400 meters. Yes. What's, what's the, so if you were shooting uh, 15 meters in front of the friendlies, what's the, lethal radius of, uh, of one of the rockets then that you're shooting. I mean, presumably this is, is this like a 2.75 inch? Yeah, 2.75 inch. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. At, for 10 pound HEs or 17 pound HEs, you know, we, we generally figure about 40 to 50 meters. Wow. Because we shoot, we shoot very, you know, we're shooting, shooting steep. It's a very yeah. steep, it's a negative angle. Yeah. So that helps with the beaten zone. So, you know, if you're, if you're at an angle, then your beaten zone is going to go on past it. Whereas if you're shooting very, I mean, I've shot vertically just like that on top of a building because it was surrounded with friendlies, you know, they were everywhere. It's, it's in the book. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, so your, um, I mean, Ukraine, <laughs> we can see what's happening with helicopters in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Maybe we can talk about that at the end and, and what your observations sure. are, if you're, if, you're, if you're happy to share. But but you're flying 
in a high threat environment because you're not the only people who've got night vision goggles now. Other people have, you know, the bad guys have night vision goggles. They've oh, got yes. heat seeking missiles, yeah, and yeah. we'll talk about that in a bit. But but you're in a you're really exposing yourself then if you're going to come in steep because you have to start relatively high, and yes. you're you're quite slow to begin with. I mean, it's a helicopter; mm-hmm. it's not a jet. So, um, is there sort of again and and because it's unguided, you're having to fly and point at the target. Is there any any sort of mitigating technique that you have then to mean that you're less likely to get hit by a small arms fire or by an RPG? Are you weaving the whole time and then you just stabilize for just a, a, a split second while you shoot? Or, or do you have to stabilize the helicopter, which means you're quite predictable for a period of time? Yes, good question. No, we don't. We're not weaving or jinking or, I mean, once I, once we get to the release point and we'll come in at, you know, a specified airspeed just to get there on time, whatever airspeed it takes to get there plus or minus 30 seconds. And then probably about, I don't know, six to 800 meters out. We're very low. We come in low, use the terrain or low to the water desert. And then we bump or we'll pop up. Okay. And in doing that, it reduces our airspeed. Plus it gives us elevation. So now we can see the target area. You know, I, I'll have a very good idea. Okay. I'm on, I'm on my line. I'm on my route. There's that there's, yep, we're good. So as soon as I get some altitude, I'll, I'll at those last few seconds, I'll say, okay, it's building 22. It's that building right there. Yep. I got it. So then I'll bump up to, I don't know, two or 300 feet. And then I'll, as soon as I get my eyes on the target, for me, my technique, I'd put the target between my pedals. So as I'm coming up, I'm just doing those final fine adjustments. I put them because I'm looking down at the target and I'm in a, you know, 50 to 60 degree angle climb and it's bleeding off my airspeed in the perfect world. You know, I'll get to the top at about 60 knots. And then, so then I'll push over, I'll put my pipper, my grease pencil on that target. I'll stabilize that aircraft because we want it as, it's as stable as possible because we're doing this precision shot. So then I'll fire a minigun, you know, once I get in range or whatever the case, and then rockets, you know, maybe it's, or it's just a rocket shot. You know, hey, I need one rocket on this building or whatever the case, or I need some minigun. I got personnel in the open, so I need you to, you know, engage those personnel. And then after the engagement, we'll do a really hard right break or left break, you know, whichever way we need to do. And then dash two or or wingman, he comes in and he'll service that target too, if required. Mm. So, Or he may have an offset target, you know, close or whatever the case. It just depends on you know, how we, how we break that target down, what the ground force needs. Mm. So it's a lot of this stuff pre-planned. Do you, so when you're talking to your customers, do you know that the plan is going to be when you drop them off, you're going to put, when the uh, MH guys have dropped them off, the, the, the gunships are going to put a couple of rounds into the building or is it often dynamic in terms of, you don't know what they're going to want until they get there? Yeah, it's <clears throat> no, we'll have pre plan or pre assault fires authorized. So if we're coming in to hit the target, we have a flight, you know, a little bird or hawks or whatever the case. And then we know we're going to shoot that specific target and they're just seconds behind us. And, you know, to get everybody's head down or to 
to neutralize that target. And they're right behind us. So as we're breaking off, you know, in the perfect world, they're, they're landing and the assaulters are, or the operators are doing their job. And then we'll come off, we go into holding right over the target. So if they get a, if we get a call for fire admission, so let's say they get jammed up or start getting engaged and then they can, you know, mark that target and say, Hey, I need this target engaged. Yep. Roger that. I got, I have your position. And that's the other thing with the gun guy, you have to have to know the scheme maneuver on the ground. Mm -hmm. And for us, we probably knew it as well, if not better than the ground force, because we have to know where every man is on that target before we do this, before we pull that trigger, because you do not want a fratricide or, you know, a friendly engagement. So you're, you're looking at, I'm just, I'm to this day, man, I don't see how I did it. (laughs) I just, I just, Oh, I mean, but it's just, you're so focused and you know, you're, you're the best trained in the world and you're with the best guys in the world, but yeah, it's a busy, busy place, man. We're listening to five radios and, you know, guys running around on the ground and bad guys are shooting at you, but you're just, I mean, your focus is that target Mm. and that's it. And I didn't, I never thought of any, yeah, I'd have guys call me on the radio. Hey, Gravy, you're getting engaged. Yeah, I know, man. I got to hit this target though. Okay. They're shooting RPGs at you. Yeah, Roger that. I got it. Okay. Stand by. Let me service this target. So, yeah, we're all very dedicated men and uh, professionals. That's that's the other thing that I've, as just an observation, I've thought about, which is, when I've seen video from Iraq um, taken from helicopters and, you know, Apache gunship um, video, that yeah. type of stuff, a lot of those buildings, it's very densely populated to begin with right. in many cases. And a lot of those buildings look very, very similar and the neighborhoods look very, yeah, very they similar. They all look alike. Yes. <laughs> do, do you have to do then a lot of target study? Are you using satellite images? I mean, you you talked about the Iranian hostage rescue. I think, you know, they built models and things for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, to yeah. what lengths do you go to understand what buildings you're going to be shooting at and how to figure out whether it's that building or the one next to it or the one in a street away from it? You bet. Yeah, that that's a great question. And yeah, you, you spend a lot of time studying that terminal area, that building, that target. And, you know, every guy has his technique or for me, you know, I'd count streets or I'd count buildings. You know, you go from big picture to little picture. So coming into an urban environment, you know, I'm like, okay, yep, I'm on this road. We're good in four roads. And I'm talking to the guy flying or if I'm flying, he's talking to me. Hey, Greg, in, the fourth road, we're going to turn right. Okay. Yep. I got that. So, and we're looking out, you know, and trying to, until we get a little bit closer and then I'm like, okay, it's the, we, we hit that road, we turn right or head North on that road and it'll be the ninth house on the right. Okay. I'm counting one, two, okay. Nine. And then both guys are confirming that, you know, we're talking with each other because we got to get the right target. Just, yeah, there's no exception. So that that's a technique that, you know, again, it's, it's hours and hours. And I mean, I'm studying, I'm studying that, that satellite photo or a photo of that target area in route. I mean, it's just, you know, I got to make sure or I'll refer to it, but we'll memorize from the release point to the target. 
you memorize that route and buildings and, you know, big things, big picture to get you down to that one building in a thousand buildings. Mm. So that's, that's a technique I used. What's it like being under fire in a helicopter then? It's chaos. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, I, I don't, I never really thought about it. I mean, I've, I think my, yeah, my first big engagement was in Afghanistan in 01. Uh, I was flying with Jamie Weeks, <clears throat> one of my heroes. We had, I'd known Jamie for years. We were in the 101st together, flew Apaches, and he had gone, he'd gone over to the unit. And then, you know, I came uh, probably a year or so after him. But we were flying our first combat mission together in Afghanistan. And I, the other aircraft went to go check out some high ground. I said, Hey, we're going to go down this draw. It looks, I mean, we're hunters and that, you know, knowing tactics and terrain and enemy, I'm like, man, this looks like a good spot right here. I was flying Jamie. He was just, you know, we're both outside. We're like nervous as long tail cats in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> Oh, and <clears throat> But when we took off that, when we first took off within three minutes, we were in an, an engagement. They had, they were setting up a, an S 60 weapon system. It's a artillery system. I mean, three minutes down the route, man, we shot those guys and blew up, you know, their trucks and S 60 and all that stuff. So we were pretty amped up, pretty excited, but I flew down this little draw. It's just West of Kandahar. And I, and you know, we don't have doors or anything on our aircraft. And I heard this, I mean, I was looking, I was looking, I just had a, I just had that gunfighter feeling, I guess you'd say, and that sixth sense, but I heard this noise, this whoosh, and then another one, whoosh, and then the third one, whoosh. I looked at Jamie, I go, you hear that? He goes, yeah. I said, holy crap, those are RPGs. <laughs> and then. Then a 12-7 opened up, and then machine guns, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I hit the deck. Jamie's like, hit the deck. And I'm already you know, I'm diving to the deck. We're really low anyway. And there must have been, I don't know, 60 to 80 Al-Qaeda fighters. I guess they were had kind of – they were sleeping kind of grouped there in this little draw. And, uh, so yeah, we came back around – I shot all those dudes up. <laughs> I think I counted six total RPG and this, this is at night. So, but yeah, it, it was just, you know, I was like, what the first one I was like, what is that? <laughs> that I figured out, but on one of them, I looked and there was, it, it was crazy, but there was this perfect smoke ring and that's, that was from the RPG, you know, it has a little smoke puff, at, but it was just hanging right above. There was no wind or little wind, but it was just that second, you know, I, was, I looked and it was just weird. It was just here out in the middle of nowhere, the smoke ring. And I was like, ah, oh, there he is right there. So yeah, we went in there and shot those dudes up. Jamie took over and yeah, we were, we got busy really quick. It, yeah it's just it's exciting it's scary as hell that's that's one thing i wanted to ask you about we, we we've said a couple of times now 
you know your faith is is obviously uh, the guiding sort of influence in your the way you look at these things but but as a you know just as a human did you give thought to what would happen if you were captured by these guys? Because neither, you know, that, that time in Iraq, uh, 2004, 2001 in Afghanistan, you know, these people were not going to follow any Geneva Convention. They were, they were not going to, um, you know, let the Red Cross come and give you aid or deliver, right. you know, care packages to you. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, they had a care package for us, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 That was, and we, before we deployed, we had some former Russian helicopter pilots came and talked to us that had fought in Afghanistan in the eighties. And I, by no means was I going to be captured. There there was just no, no way, man. I was going to fight to my last bullet. And it, it was, it's just terrible what they, what they did to those Russian helicopter pilots and they had videos and Mm. pictures. And I said, okay, I got no, yeah, no problem. (laughs) Uh, No problem at all. But no, I capture was not a option for sure. Can I ask a very personal question? Are you you married? Did you have a, did you leave family behind when you went to these deployments? Did, did Did they have an understanding and appreciation for what, the risks were, did you have a conversation with them? I mean, what do you say if your wife says to you, I'm, you know, scared, you know, what, what, what can you say? Yeah, it's, and our, our families are, we have, first of all, we have a very, very strong family support group in, you know, army wide and, and even stronger, I feel in special operations because we spend so much over 200 days a year, we're gone. And then, you throw a war in there and you don't, you know, you can't tell them where you're going, what you're doing. And that was just, that was the written rule. And they didn't question, of course, little kids, you know, my, my girls were eight and 10 when I deployed no one. And yeah, it's like, okay, dad's got to go, you know, and, and they knew they were old enough that, you know, the towers had been, hit and we had been attacked and i mean kids are kids are pretty sharp they're you know they're smart and especially on we lived on fort campbell and you know that army community i mean they just they knew that things had changed and things were going to change but yeah as that you know that quiet professional that uh, special operator it's it's just a given that you know, the wise, they, they don't ask and we don't tell. So it's just, that's just the way it is. It's, yeah. And we, you know, we deploy, we, we can't write letters. We can't receive letters. We can't call. There's no internet or, you know, things like that. It's, it's simply to protect that force because of somebody, you know, what was the old saying? Loose lips sink ships. So yeah, it, it was to protect the force. Yeah. It kind of sucked, but you knew they were at home praying for you and they, you know, they had their lives and and their life went on and they worried about you. Sure. Absolutely. They did. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it takes, it takes a tribe. It sure does get through that. Yes, sir. Can you set the scene for us then gravy with regards to, uh, 2004, then your, your deployment to Iraq and 
what you were doing in in the sort of lead up to your experience uh, being shot down. Sure, that was. Let's see. I think that was my third deployment, third or fourth deployment. I had ten deployments. To Iraq. You did ten. Mm-hmm. One to Afghanistan. So eleven total. But yeah, we all did. I mean, that was that was just life as a special operations soldier, and. So, yeah, it, it was, of course, it was 04, you know, things were, it was a wild, wild west out just everywhere in that country. And uh, the insurgency had started late 03, and I was there late 03, Oct- yeah, October, November, we started to see that insurgency begin, you know, all these foreign fighters were coming into Iraq to fight the Americans and, you know, we'd go and service targets or hit targets and start seeing all these, all these Al Qaeda factions from all over the world, from Africa, from, you know, everywhere from Saudi Arabia. And so we're like, okay. And then it, you know, it really, I guess Fallujah one, you know, started then and then later Fallujah two. Yeah. We were right in the middle of that. And, We'd hit, I don't know, we'd hit anywhere from four to six targets a night. So every night for 90 to 100 days. And so, yeah, that, that was the, that was the environment on, you know, when I deployed, that was in uh, February of 04, end of February. And and these targets were, sorry to interrupt, these these targets then were, Uh, was it high value individuals that the yes. the operators were being told to capture or kill? Yes. Okay. Kill or capture. Kill or capture. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's Not there's capture. a <laughs> Okay. All right. These are bad people, man. <laughs> but but you were on the, the, the day in question, you were flying I mean, we've talked a lot about being the night stalkers flying at night, night vision goggles. And I, I did say to you before we recorded, before we hit record on this, I actually don't know what happened on this mission because I've deliberately tried not to find out about it. So I've, I've read a little bit online. I've, I've seen a couple of your other interviews, but I deliberately didn't go into this because I didn't want to have a, a, a set direction I wanted to take the conversation in. But I do know you were flying in the daytime. Yes. So how yes. did that come about then? Well, our buddies needed our help. That's why. And this was actually, this was the, this just happened to be on 19 March, 2004. It was a first day mission since Mogadishu in 93. And that was the battle of the black sea, October 3rd and 4th, where, you know, of course everybody knows black Hawk down. And, but <clears throat> we'd been extremely busy the last past couple of days and, and we had, we were working in Fallujah. And so just to kind of draw a picture. So Fallujah, there's Baghdad and then to the West is Fallujah, West of Fallujah, Ramadi, and then kind of center between Ramadi, Fallujah down South was Amaria. Well, we call that the devil's triangle because that was where between Fallujah, Ramadi and Amaria were, most of the fighting was taking place and you know the 82nd had had been there they had they had just been relieved by i think first marine 
So the Marines had come into Fallujah. And then of course we were, we're all over the map, you know, going after these high value targets and leadership of Al Qaeda and, uh, you know, different, different regimes that were there at the time. So yeah, we, and I'll just back up a little bit to, to set the conditions. So that night we'd hit several targets in Fallujah and then off of one target, we gathered some Intel where there was another high value target that we were looking for. And he was going to be going to a meet at a house. So, and that was supposed to take place in the morning that, that, that morning. Cause it was, I don't know, three or four o'clock in the morning. So the, the ground force, special operations ground force, they, they told us, they said, Hey, you guys just go back to Baghdad. That's where we're still living at the time. And <clears throat> we're going to, you know, we're just going to drive to this target and hit it. And then, you know, we'll see you guys later. Roger that. So we left and they hit that target. And then off of that target, they gained some more intelligence. There was another high value target that we were looking for in Amaria. So they just drove, you know, they're like, Hey, we're just going to drive down there and kill this guy and then head out. So in that time period at some time, they had, they'd been ambushed and gotten a gunfight. So we had heard about it and it's about noon, I guess. And so we made the decision to go support them and help them. And, and we did. So it was only like, I don't know, about a 12 minute flight from where we were with Baghdad. So yeah, we, we saddled up and took off two AHs and got on station. It was uh, probably about 1300 hours local time there. So, you know, 1 PM in the afternoon and we had made some, we'd made some gun runs and then just started to recce to recon, make sure. And they had, they had gotten, they had five vehicles and they had gotten those vehicles up on the road, had done their mission and were actually getting ready to deploy back to their mission site. And, uh, <clears throat> the troop commander had called on the radio I said, Hey, we're going to exfil. And, <clears throat> you know, flying out there, I was just like, I just did not have a good feeling. And I mean, that sixth sense or that, but the hair literally stood up. I remember it standing up on the back of my neck and, you know, I told the guy I was flying with, Hey, whoever's not flying, you've got your M4 up and ready to engage targets of opportunity or to suppress or it's, and it's very effective. We're, we're very accurate, accurate shooters with our M4s out of the aircraft. So we got on station and I, and I just, I was just like, man, let God, please just watch over us and give us, I said, give give me speed and accuracy. <laughs> That's all I asked for. So we we're probably on station about 10 minutes and the five vehicles had gotten back up on the road. They're getting ready to drive away. The troop commander called and said, Hey, we're going to exfil in one minute. And I was like, I was like, oh, okay, good. We're out of here. And I had, I would come around and, and I'd 
just flown real low, you know, to the vehicle like we always do. And you just kind of wave at the guys and they wave back. And I was pulling up, I was in a climbing right hand turn about 65 knots. I was about a hundred and probably 50, 160 feet off the ground. And just all I can, the only way I can explain it is just this huge explosion. I mean, it, it shook my helmet, it shook our bodies and everything else. And this, I recall seeing this white hot rod, just, it just went right by my head. And of course, you know, it gets real quiet because they had fired a man pad, an SA-16 surface to air shoulder fired missile. And it's an IR and infrared heat seeker that missile is so it seeks the heat of the engine they can use it on jets fighters helicopters whatever that case but it's designed specifically for that type of engagement so the and of course you know when your engine quits you have all these warning lights and whistles and tones going off in my head and you know in that in that split second i you know, I told myself, I said, look, I know, I know the engine's out. It's real quiet. And just, you know, I wish that stuff would shut up so I could focus on my task because I had an enter an auto rotation. You being a helicopter pilot, you know what an auto rotation is. So we're taught and I'm, I'm an instructor pilot. So I've done many, many auto rotations and we do ours all the way to the ground. So we land, and, you know, do the whole thing. Whereas, Others don't do that because it tears helicopters <laughs> when they do. That. So I said, "Okay, I got to get the aircraft level. I got to get the collective down." And at that instant, when that missile hit it, the best way I can explain it is like an old movie frame. So my I was seeing my life at that time, frame by frame by frame and time just slowed down to nothing is the best way I can explain that. So, you know, and, and your training kicks in, you know, we train, 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 train. That's why we train, but my training kicked in, entered auto rotation, got the collective down, check my altitude, check my airspeed, check my rotor. Cause I, and you know, you fly these aircraft long enough. I can just, I don't have to look at my rotor RPM. I can hear it. You know, you can hear that up and down that RPM, the rotation. And I, you know, I, could, I was like, man, it's getting high. So I just, I pulled a little collective in and we were heavy. I mean, I was full of gas. I was full of ammo. Um, and I had a tailwind. I do remember that it was, it's crazy what you can recall. And I kind of go back to talking to old, fighter pilots from world war two, you know, they, they can't tell you what they have for breakfast that morning, but they're like, yeah, 1944, it was clear blue. It was, you know, 67 degrees. The wind was out of the North. Well, I remember that. And the, the wind was out of the North about 20 knots that day. And I had turned to the South because that, I mean, you're, you're going where you are. I mean, you're, you're going down. So I'd entered the auto rotation my rotor got to like 105, so I, I didn't want it to get too high. So I pulled in some collective, just bumped it real quick. And, it, and I mean, it, it's 
you know, again, adrenaline and all these physiological effects take place in your body under stress or under duress. And I understand this. My heart rate was probably about 180 at the time. I'm just, I'm just going to guess. But so I kept in, in, in the, in that dirt, it's not sand, it's just dirt, you know, like you see on TV or, and it's extremely dusty. So every landing's a brownout landing, but there's nothing, there's no trees, there's no buildings, there's no poles. So as a helicopter pilot or as an aviator, you use those vertical things to judge your distance above the ground. So like, you know, around trees, I was like, okay, about the top of those trees, I'll start my D cell because you have a procedure to do during an auto rotation or you use the radar altimeter. So I kept checking the radar altimeter because there's no way I could judge my height above the ground. So at, at about 75 feet, my airspeed was good. I was at like 65 knots and, and, uh, it was a near vertical descent because we were heavy and I had a tailwind. So I was probably in the worst environment to conduct a, <laughs> a successful auto rotation that I could have been in. Cause you always want to be into the wind in an aircraft or especially a helicopter that's heavy because that wind helps you with lift. So but it was what it was, and I, I did what I had to do. So at, at about 75 feet, I saw on the radar terminal, I started my decel. So you have to start a deceleration to get that airspeed off. I'm trying to explain best to people that don't fly helicopters. And then at about 20 feet, you'll pull initial with the collective, and that's just a start your cushion as you're, I mean, you're coming down rapidly. I was probably descending at about 2,600 feet per minute. Wow. So I was, that, that helicopter screams out of the air during an auto rotation because of the rotor system. So, and then, you know, I said, well, to myself, I said, okay, at, you know, at about 20, 25 feet, I'm going to initial and I'm going to level because I'm in a decelerating attitude like this, and you don't want to touch down like that because you'll knock the tail boom off. So about 20 feet, you level, and then you you pull your cushion just as you're, you know, 10 to 5 feet before touching down. So I pulled just a little bit of initial after I leveled. And for me, I did not know the condition of the surface. So I, I wanted to reduce i didn't want a very long ground run is what i'm trying to say so i did a really steep you know i did a really steep decel to get that airspeed off then i leveled and then i just pulled everything i had left at about 10 to 15 feet and then i touched down and and just and it was it was perfect (laughs) you know it was like it's kind of like Neil Armstrong, you know, getting the limb to the moon. He had one shot. Well, Gravy had one shot, and and I did it. And uh, yeah, my the guy I was flying with, you know, later we were in our heads, we were high fiving each other. You know, he's like, man. And then the guy in the other aircraft said, "Dude, that was the prettiest auto I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> and I was on fire. I mean, there's I actually have a picture of it one of the Rangers took and you, you can see the fire coming out of my aircraft and smoke and, 
it had blown the engine doors. They were flapping in the wind. The, the ground guys were like, you know, in that combat pause that second, they were like, it's kind of funny, you know, look at old gravy up there trying to fly. You know, the engine cali boards are flapping. I'm on fire. But so we I landed, of course, you know, just you're engulfed in that dust cloud because it's just, it's real fine, like powder and the cockpit filled with dust. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, just hold everything, you know, cause I'm not, I knew I wasn't going very fast when I touched down and we were level and we were upright and I said, Hey, we got this. And then Mr. Murphy sticks his old ugly head up. Everybody knows who Murphy is, right? The bad, bad luck guy. So, I said, okay, I'm just, I'm going to hold everything right here. We'll just, we'll come to a stop. You know, I started to slowly lower that collective, get that rotor blade flat and get that weight on the ground. And uh, we slid about 30, 35 meters yards. And <laughs> I went down just a bit of a slope. And then there was some soft dirt there. Well, the skids hit that soft dirt with that momentum and that weight, well, they stuck. So end over end we go. And I'm no cowboy and I used to, you know, break horses and ride horses and stuff. But all I could think of, you know, when, when a horse would start bucking, you just, you get your feet out in front of you and you kind of lean back, you know, to get that center of gravity back you don't get bucked off well that's what i did in that helicopter because that helicopter started doing this so i was like back 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 and then uh, i don't remember any i remember hearing the rotor blades hit that pow, 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 and i i do remember going over that first time they said we rolled three times and mm -hmm. uh in over in but that that aircraft was designed to do that and i've read so many stories about loach pilots they the oh six or the md 500 flying in vietnam and crashing and that thing just roll the tail boom breaks off and it's shaped like an egg if you look at it some guys call it the killer egg and uh so that it rolled as designed thank you howard hughes for your great design of a great helicopter and uh, yeah in I, it knocked me, it knocked us both out. And in the crash sequence, I was in the right seat, which were the primary, the piloting command sits in the right seat, whereas civilians, they sit in the left seat. Why I don't know to this day still, but anyway, my door, my head hit the door frame and it, I hit the door frame so hard it cracked my helmet. Wow. <clears throat> and I came to, and I was like, Okay. Hmm. Of course, you can't see. There's dust and everything. I, I don't know how long I was out. Not very long. Couldn't have been. So, but I, I kept hearing this popping. Pop, 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 pop. First, I think, you know, gunfire. And then I did hear the 50 because two of the guys, well, they saw the shot came off a roof of this two-story building. So they started to engage it, suppress it. And, and I kept hearing this popping. Well, you, you know, I went through that. Okay. Move your toes. Yeah, they work. Move your feet. Yeah, they work. Okay. My left leg. I kind of feel it. My right leg. Yeah, I kind of feel it. 
I could move it. Of course, you know, you go all the way up and I'm looking at my hands <laughs> like, okay, we're good. And, uh, and then I, then it hit me. I was like, that's not popcorn popping. That it was weird. Is I was like, why is that popcorn popping? It was the ammo cooking off right behind my head <laughs> back in the cargo area. <clears throat> so I was like, Oh man. Then I thought I had, 17 pound rockets on board, probably eight or 10 at the time. We carry 14, but I did not know what those would do when they caught fire. What were they going to explode? Were they going to, you know, I had no idea. And later nothing happened to them. They just burn up in the post-crash fire. So I looked over at my co-pilot and he was looking straight ahead. Now keep in mind, we're inverted. We came to rest upside down and I was on, and we were on the right side was on kind of on the ground. The rotor system was gone. Tail boom was gone. And so I'm now I'm thinking about him and, and he, he later he told me, you know, those of us with kids, you're in the car driving, you hit the brakes. Well, what does a parent do? They, you put your arm out, right? He said, I, I put my, I put my arm out in front of him. You know, it's just the crazy things that we do because I love him. <laughs> and <laughs> so I look at him. Well, he's got blood all over his face. And I'm thinking, oh, man, is he hit? Did he do the cyclic kiss? The little bird is famous for the shoulder harness not locking in a crash sequence. And the pilot, the cyclic sits right here, and the pilot smacks it with his teeth. I know a few guys that have cyclic teeth. I've been in crashes. So I thought about that. I thought, okay, is he, you know, did he get wounded? Did he get shot? Did, what's going on? But so I, I kind of put my hand on his shoulder and, you know, and I was screaming at him, hey, get out, get out, get out, get your rifle and get out. And I point, you know, I'm like, we always meet at the three o'clock or the nine o'clock because, it's a gun bird and you don't want to get in front of guns or rockets or anything. So safety. So, and then I, he kind of turned his head and, you know, he had blood all over his face. So I didn't say anything because, you know, if you tell somebody, Oh my God, you're bleeding or, you know, your legs broke. Well, it just puts them into another level of shock. We were both in shock. And uh, I said, get out, get your rifle, get out. We'll meet over here. And he just kind of did one nod. And then he just kept looking straight ahead. So my first priority was safety of the helicopter. Cause all I could think about was black Hawk down. Okay. Helicopter shot down. We we're only about 300 meters from this hornet's nest. We just stirred up. So my, you know, my first priority was protect myself, protect the guy I was with. And, and I knew the guys were coming to get us because they were, you know, they were right there. So security of the helicopter. So I crawl, I grab my rifle, I crawl out and I try to stand up. Well, the, the other AH now he's overhead because he's like, okay, they're on fire. And he, he told me, he said they'd made several traffic pat, you know, flights around it and the helicopter was burning they hadn't seen us. He said, I was getting ready to land when I saw you crawl out, you know, to get you guys out. 
and uh, he said, "We." Is that kind of reminded him of a circus clown? They were watching me, and I stood up. Well, in the again, I had I had broken my neck, my back, uh, dislocated shoulders, blew both knees out, and and I stood up, but I had a stinger, you know, in that L spine, and my my right leg didn't work. And I they said I'd take a step and I'd fall, and I'd get back up, and I'd take a step and I'd fall, and I'd get back. Up <laughs> They're like, we did chuckle when we were watching you. I said, you son of a guns, you know, that's pretty messed up. But they, they're like, okay, they're good. Let's get back in the fight. And they're almost out of gas at this point. So they, you know, they did what they could. And of course, you know, radios are blowing up. Hey, we got an aircraft down, uh, launch CSAR combat search and rescue, you know, it got back to our guys at Baghdad. They were loading up. They said it looked like the Clampets, man. <laughs> they had they had Delta Rangers hanging off a helicopter. I mean, everybody's coming to get you. That's just the way it is. They don't care. And uh, and uh, later on, I did tell them, I, I told the troop commander, Sergeant Major, I said, hey, call those guys. Tell them not to come in here. Do not. Cause I really thought it was, it was a trap and I have a theory on who shot me down. Never could, you know, confirm or deny, but I, I, I'm, we were the eighth helicopter to be shot down in that triangle. Mm. Devil's triangle, all of them SA 16s. And they told us there were no SA 16s in country. So I have a theory about that. But anyway, you think it was another so nation? Was, Pardon? You think it was forces from another nation? Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you say? And I and we were the last. There weren't any more. So I think, yeah, they had eight missiles. And I don't think there were any survivors of the other seven helicopters that were shot down. Mm-hmm. I know a couple of them were Chinooks full of troops, and they, everybody had perished. I think a couple 58s, Black Hawk. I can't remember all, but anyway, so I finally, I sat down and I was like, well, maybe my leg's broken. So I pulled up my pant leg, looked at my leg. No, it's okay. I kind of felt around them, you know, did a self-assessment, self-triage. And, uh, I pulled my helmet off. And so I, then I started, I, I got up, I said, okay, I got to make sure nobody's coming up here any bad guys. So I did a 360, you know, the best I could around the aircraft looked in all directions. Of course, it was just barren desert to the West of us behind us. And then that, you know, that bill was right in front of us and kind of to the South of us. So nobody coming. So I'm like, so I look back and I was like, man, where's co-pilot, you know, cause I mean, now the, the almost the cockpit is engulfed in flames. And then I thought, well, my rucksack, we all carry a little one-day ruck. We hang it right behind us in the cargo area where the ammo cans are placed. But in there, we'll have water, grenades, ammo, night vision goggles. Well, I said, okay, I got to get that out of there. Well, I kind of ran back to the aircraft and I stopped, but the cargo area was fully engulfed in fire. So, you know, and the ammo was cooking off in there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to reach my hand and <laughs> get that stupid rucksack. We'll be okay. 
And uh, so I came back out, did another look, and then I looked for the co-pilot again. He still hadn't gotten out. Now I'm getting concerned. So I kind of go to the front of the aircraft and I scream at him. He's still hanging upside down in his straps, in his helmet. He just, he's just looking, you know, I go, Hey, you got to get out. I'm not kidding. And, and he, and he nodded and I said, okay, so back to work, you know, keeping security of our position there. And then I looked back again and I didn't see him. I said, okay, I've had enough. I can't take any more. So I ran, well, hobbled up, crawled up to the front of the aircraft. And when I looked, uh, the fire was just rolling right there at his arm. I'm like, okay, he's about to catch on fire. So I just, I crawled in the helicopter. I reached up, you know, those latches on our, on our belts. And I just, I pulled the latch and he goes, boom. <laughs> and he, he hits on his head. And then it, I think it, you know, he's like, oh, okay, this is, this is happening. And, you know, we kind of smiled at each other and I just grabbed him and I just jerked him. I just jerked him out of there. And I, I pushed back and then I jerked him again. He's right. And I kind of rolled over and I was like, Hey, <laughs> you okay? He's, he's just kind of nodded. And, and later I asked, I said, what were you doing in there, man? He goes, I was listening to the radio. The radios were still on. I, I did got to hit the battery. I did everything else okay. I got us on the ground safe. So the rest is Mox Nicks. And uh, he's like, "Yeah, I was listening. You know, they're talking about us. They're like, hey, gravy's down. You know, and da-da, we're in a gunfight and launched the alert five. And da-da-da. I was like, knucklehead. You're, you know, we're both jacked up. I mean, we're yeah. shocked. Both had head knocked out. And, I wound up having a severe TBI traumatic brain injury and a bunch of other stuff. But so we get out, we get over to the three o'clock side of the burning mess. And there's a bit of a defilade. So I put him, I set him up. He sat up. I looked at him. I said, okay. And I, you know, I triaged him, checked his legs and, his arm is, he had, again, he had blood all over his face. And I was like, man, did he hit the cyclic, you know? And I, I told him, I said, Hey, show me your teeth. You know? So he, I said, okay, his teeth are good. And, uh, I was like, I was like, stick your tongue out. And he bitten his tongue halfway through. <laughs> I was like, Oh dude. I was like, Oh man. I said, okay. You know, I said, you're good. I didn't say anything to him. So I said, all right, I said, I'm going to I put him in a prone and looking north. And then I got on a knee looking towards the east, towards the bill there for security. I said, OK, man, we're I look back to my poor helicopter and it was just fully engulfed, man. I was like, and now I was pissed. I was mad. And uh, I said, hey, listen, I said, if you see something or hear something, sing out. I said, I'll, we'll put two sets of eyes on it. You know, I'll, I'll do the same. We're kind of messed up and I don't want to shoot somebody that we don't intend to shoot. I said, I'll call the shot. Okay. And I'm a shooter. I shot professionally for many years and trained with the, the fellas and all that. So I had full faith and confidence in my abilities. And, uh, 
So I heard a vehicle. I'm like, Hey, I said, I got, there's a vehicle coming. And it was, you know, again, we were kind of down in, in a bit of low ground. So I couldn't see over a little rise right there. And I heard it stop. And then I saw, a, I saw a head kind of bouncing. So they were running. Then I saw a ball cap. Then I saw this face beard. And I was like, Oh, I know that guy. <laughs> I said, okay, we're good. <laughs> and it was my old buddy, Chaz. And, uh, and he stopped and he looked and he just, he couldn't believe we were, and I saw him months later, he told me, he said he had, he had thought there were two Rangers had already gotten there and they were set up in a secure, I said, no, man, that was, he's like, well, I know now he's like, how'd those Rangers get there so fast? You know, it's like, Oh, that's gravy. Okay. But he runs up and he, we stand up and he grabs us and we hug each other and, and he's like, man, he's like, dude, I, we thought you were dead. And I said, well, we ain't dead, bro. But, and he, he told me, I asked him for a fire extinguisher. <laughs> he goes, bro, it's beyond a fire extinguisher. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. I don't recall that. But, and he looked at me and he goes, what do you want to do? I said, I want to find that son of a bitch and kill him. He's like, get in a truck. <laughs> we got in the truck. And uh, we got up and we got online and uh, the five vehicles and we assaulted where the shot came from. Of course, we were getting gunfire, you know, and we're in a gunfight. And, and it, it was funny. You're, you're probably too young to, I know you're too young to remember, but there used to be this old show on TV. It was called Rat Patrol. It was about some British that, during World War II that ran around in the African desert and these gun Jeeps fighting Germans. And uh, it was one of my favorite shows. It's just it's probably on YouTube or something. But and of course I have my window down. We're in a in a up armored Humvee. And and I look to the right and I kind of we were kind of in the middle and I look to the left and I go, huh. This reminds me of rap patrol. You know, here we are mom, going across the desert. Shoot, everybody's shooting. The fifties are shooting. The dual guns are shooting. Everybody's shooting. And anyway, and then I got back to, you know, task at hand searching for targets. And, uh, so yeah, long story short, we assaulted the bill. Um, it's been about, I don't know, five to six hours in a gunfight. Uh, we got stuck Two of the, Humvees got stuck. So one of the armored vehicles had to peel off under fire back up to us. Guy runs out the back with a snack strap, hooks it to the Humvee, pulls us out of the mud. <laughs> I'm like, here we are in the middle of the desert. And we're stuck in a mud hole. I mean, what are the chances? Murphy. Okay. So <clears throat> we, we do that. And, uh, we get up to some buildings up into the built up area. And uh, there was a young ranger, Jeremy Smith, and a good, good, good friend of mine. He was on um, dual machine guns they had in that that particular truck. And there was, there was a couple buildings. I we, this is when we got stuck, so we we peeled out and we took cover. And I was on the left back corner of that vehicle. <clears throat> Another guy was kind of next to me in the back. He was. Of course, our medic man, he was he was on us and shoving stuff in us and needles in us. And he's like, here, eat this. I'm like, just 
get away, man. Just leave me alone. You know, doc was like, ah, I got to take care of you. And it, it was just, it was funny at the time and looking back. So <clears throat> there's a dude, he, they got these, we call them dog houses on the roofs of these houses, but it's an, it's so you can get up on the roof, you know, through the house, you come up. Hmm. I'll see this dude walk out. He's in a black man dress, you know, those long, we call them man dresses and he's on a cell phone. And I'm like, Oh, I go, Hey, Sergeant major. I said, I got contact on the roof. He's on the phone. He, he goes, shoot him. I was like, where's that? So he kind of ran back into the, I got my rifle up. And, you know, I was focused on that, on that roof. Well, he comes back out. So I, I controlled paired him, you know, and he drops. And then the gunner, he opens up on the, he's like, Oh, shots fired. Yo Rangers, man. They love to fight. So he engages the building. And then I look to the left and two dudes, they come running out of a house. One's got an AK, the other's got an RPG. So I engage those guys and then, the gunner, he rolls up on them and starts shooting. And I mean, it was just, it was, it was controlled chaos is <laughs> the best way I could put it. So we, yeah. And then we got pulled out and then continued and yeah, gunfight after gunfight. And that we got, we went into the town and tried to find, because I wanted to go up on that building to see if there was any, you know, if they left anything. Mm box or any anything dunnage or something but so we cleared that building went up on the roof and there was nothing up there and then then sergeant major he started you know grabbing dudes and he spoke fluent arabic and all kinds of languages so he started you know kind of talk chatting with them so to speak and uh we couldn't find the dude and so we mounted back up and went back to the crash site because I wanted to make sure that all of our sensitive items, you know, radios, uh, any any control, you know, the miniguns. We didn't want I didn't want the enemy to get anything. Now going back, so we're trained that if we are in a in a crash on the miniguns, they have what's called a safing sector. Okay, on each gun. Well, we're taught. If we have to leave a gun, we can't physically carry it out to pull the safing sector. Then the gun can't be fired. And there's only one place on the planet you can get. It's a very controlled item. You, you can't get them. <clears throat> I, and I had forgot about this, but I'd pulled both safing sectors off the guns and I'd put them, I had pockets on the side of my legs. And I'd put one in each pocket. 10 years later, I'm cleaning out an old duffel bag and I, I'm like, Oh, there's my pants. I was wearing, I pull them out of the kit bag. And I'm like, huh, something in them. Those safe insectors. Really? This is like 10 years after the fact, you know? So I, I actually, I have one. It's right up here. There's the safing sector. Oh, wow. My minigun. <laughs> well, I gave the other one to Mr. Mike Dillon. Dillon Arrow builds our M134 miniguns. And I gave that other one to Mike. This Mike's cool. a good friend. God rest his soul. But 
but yeah, so yeah, that, that was just weird. You know, the things that we do that we're trained to do, you know, our training takes over hmm. and I, I did not ever, you know, it's 10 years later that I found these silly safing sectors. Wow. So yeah, so I'd done that. And, uh, and in the meantime, so they had called for CSAR, Combat Search and Rescue. Well, theater-dedicated combat search and rescue at that time was AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command. They're, you know, they're CSAR helicopters. They're the best in the world and blah, blah, blah. But their motto is, so others will live. That's their motto, okay? Aircraft goes down. Their job's to go get them. Well, the troop commander said, hey, Greg, you need to come here and listen to this conversation. They refused to come get us. Sure did. Fact. Okay. That's another story. Anyway, I know the pilots probably would have, you know, and the, the PJs and those dudes were probably like chomping at the bit, but higher command or whatever. So <clears throat> in the meantime, you know, back at Baghdad, I mean, there's probably – 12 helicopters loaded up with commandos, assaulters, crew chiefs. I mean, they were coming, man. I told them, I said, do not come in here. Cause I was afraid that, okay, this is, you know, they're not stupid. This is a trap. They're going to get other aircraft in here. And uh, I think they finally did get a hope to some F-16s, but they were bingo fuel. So they're about out of fuel. They had to leave. And, you know, Sergeant Major was like, hey, we got this, man. We got them. Doc's here. But, yeah, so long day, uh, about six hours worth of gunfight. And then we fought her. We had to go through Fallujah to Ramadi, fight our way through Ramadi to our support site up north, <laughs> north of Ramadi. We got there about 2,200 hours that night, about 10 p.m. And uh, one of our Blackhawks were of course, they had their doctors there, and they they you know started to take care of us. And our Black Hawk, old Night Stalker Black Hawk, landed and exfilled us and took us to the cash, the hospital there in Baghdad. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, that was just another day in the life of a gun pilot, man. <laughs> it was crazy. But I, I mean, you know, it, it's all God's will and plan that he had for me and the other guy that, that we're here. I mean, I don't question. So I noticed so. You, you haven't named him. Is, is, does he not want to be named? No, I don't. Mm -mm. No, I won't name him. So, so when you're, once you've um, sort of got in the back of this, um, vehicle then and you're going out and trying to take it you know f find the people that have shot at you um, and that's obviously taking quite a long while how are you feeling are you you know you've had a big um, head injury so do you are you do you, are you compass mentis at that point are you thinking do you start thinking clearly do you start feeling pain as the adrenaline wearing it, off what, what? it's adrenaline man it's yeah adrenaline takes out now I had this freaking splitting headache I mean, my head pounded and doc was, I don't know what he was pushing in us or giving us, but yeah. He, and I kept telling him, man, my head is just, he's like, yeah, dude, you've had a bad head injury and it's going to hurt. 
but again, your training takes over and it's, it's, I can't explain it. Other people can't explain it. It's just with all the injuries I had, I had a, I've had 39 surgeries and I have over 40 pieces of titanium in my body. Right. What they took to put me back together. But wow. it's all good. And we got the best surgeons and doctors and care. And, but yeah, it was, you know, and, and it is funny because that you mentioned that because as soon as we pulled through our gate at our support site, I, I, I got sick and I started to throw up. I popped the door open. And I just, they said, literally, I just fell out on the ground. Because then it was like, I'm safe. You know, I guess in your mind takes over then. And, hey, I, I know I'm safe. I'm hurt. And, of course, I had a concussion, so I started to vomit, and, mm. you know, concussion. But nothing, you know, yeah, I remember I was just, I was alert and, you know, scanning for targets that, that whole time. Mm. It, it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> That's more than 10% true. <laughs> It's it's an incredible story. I've never I've never heard anything like it. It is incredible. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What if if I'm if I may ask, Gravy? Then you talked about a significant uh, brain injury. Then um, did that end your flying career? Has it impacted your your life? Does your wife say your character has changed? What what's the outcome from that? What what does it mean to you? Yeah, there's there, there was quite a bit of change and and. It's ex-wife okay. now, so yeah. But we, you know, we were married for 32 years, and I, I'm grateful for that. And uh, yeah, and I and I, I sought help, and I've been to multiple organizations that support veterans with TBI and PTS. And, I, and PTS is just, I, I, I don't think I have it, but you know, they tell me I have it. And uh, but yeah, I, I've. I've had the best care. I've been to like a couple of brain centers. It's two week in house inpatient, you know, help that's some years ago that, and of course the unit, uh, but no, it, it didn't end my flying career at that time. And, and our, I look back and I hope I don't get somebody in trouble, but anytime an aviator is knocked unconscious, it's an automatic two year grounding automatic. Then they will assess you. But, you know, in the 160th, our docs have full faith and confidence in us. And if I tell doc, I'm good to go, I'm good to go. Okay. Mm-hmm. They know that. And if I'm not good, they'll say, hey, I, man, I just, I need some more time. Yep. Roger that. Mm-hmm. So they won't, you don't get an upslip. You get, you get a slip that says, you know, duty, not in cl- duty, not including flight. It's called a denif. So. Yeah. And, and I, they had my helmet and I later, I told the guys, I says, I want you to burn that helmet. I don't want it getting back to Fort Rucker or being analyzed. Cause they could analyze that and say, Hey, this guy took a, you know, eight G shot to the head. <laughs> he's, he's never flying. I did not want that. I mean, that's just how we are. We don't, I wanted to get back in the fight. So and I, and I did. And of course I was down for a while and I, my next tour, I went to help. I was a fire support guy for Delta. Their fire support guy had just left. So they're in a transition 
and they asked me if, you know, I, I said, absolutely, man. I, yes, anything I can do or to get me back in the fight, I'll do it. So I did a tour with them in, uh, October 04 to, to Feb 05. And then I worked with Tutu there too. And I just, I love those guys. And I just, yeah, man, they're some of the best operators on the planet. Bar none. I think Delta's a little better, but we got more gear. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I have the utmost respect. They, they do more with little. So God bless them. But, uh, yeah, the pilgrims, I love those guys. But so I went through that process and I got, got home and of course they, you know, they started sending me to all these specialists and evaluating me and, and long story short, I, I would, if I, so I needed multiple surgeries. So I'd get a surgery done like a knee and then I'd deploy and then I'd come back and I'd get a shoulder done and I'd have recovery time. Then I'd deploy and then I'd come back Then I get the other shoulder done, then another knee, and then, wow. <laughs> then my back, you know, and, but is it, was it the right thing to do for Greg Coker? It was. Yeah, sure was. And, you know, it, I just, I don't know people call me crazy or call us crazy, but it, it's my job. It's my mission. And I was, yeah, I didn't want to miss anything. I did not. So yeah, I kept that up till 2008 when I retired. And, and uh, yeah, you, you said that they think, um, presumably the VA think that you've got uh, PTSD, but, and, but you don't, what, what do they say? How do they think it manifests that you don't think it does manifest? I mean, what is it? They're saying, that well, you, don't agree with. It, you know, it's, it's like a good friend of mine. I talked to him, Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb. Uh, we go way, way back. Delta commando, and good friend of mine. But he told me he was in Mogadishu and he says, gravy, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I said, oh, okay. You know, and I've talked to guys from Vietnam, from World War II guys, God bless them. It's just something they wouldn't, but there's different names. Like, you know, and they did a study on it after World War II. And, you know, they call it shell shock then. And I, Vietnam is a thousand yards there. I mean, any, any, and anybody can have PTS, a rape victim, a person that's been in a vehicle accident, you know, somebody that was abused. I mean, it, it's, it's a traumatic experience that takes place in the brain. I just, I just dove into all this and studied it and researched it just you know, to help me better deal with it. Yeah, you got it, but you just got to learn to deal with it. And, you know, they have medication that helps me. I mean, I still take meds and went and I saw a therapist for years and years and I finally graduated from that. So, <clears throat> but yeah, it, it's different for every person. And I, I think it's, you know, at my level as a special operator, you're, you know, you're more mature as a soldier, you're more mature as a man. And other than an 18, 19 year old kid that sees the atrocities and the horror of war, well, it's going to act differently on that person. So, but yeah, it's, you know, some of these folks are, you know, I'll ask them, Hey, what happened? Or, Oh, I got PTS. And I'm like, Oh, well, okay. So yeah, I heard a, a mortar hit 800 meters away or <laughs> Yeah, I was like, okay, man, what, you know, God bless you, whatever, dude, whatever you can live with, you got to 
to look at yourself in the mirror every day. So, you know, I got buddies that are missing legs and arms and eyes and all kind of stuff. And, you know, we, we talk about it. Yeah. We have a good network. We have a great, fantastic network that we all, you know, we are a tribe and, you know, a little bit on the book. It's the book's not about me. It's about my tribe and what we did as, as that team. And, uh, so yeah, that, that's how I wanted to approach it. And, you know, I've heard stories of other people that wrote and, you know, it's all about me or whatever the case, but I'm just, I'm not that way. And I, I think it's important that we capture these stories to educate future generations, future warriors. Mm. And, and if nothing else, my wife, she inspired me to write the book. I wasn't going to write it. No way, no how. I did not want to be that guy. There's not, there's only about two books written about the 160th. You know, of course, Mike Durant. Uh, I think another fella, crew chief, wrote one about being a crew chief. And so, yeah, it was, um, of course, George Hand, my my ghostwriter, as he calls himself. George was an A squadron. He's a Delta Force operator for many years. And and he's he just he and Kyle Lamb just beat me over the head <laughs> to write. And Kyle always told me, he would say, Gravy, if it ain't written, it never happened. Yeah. So I thought about that. But my wife, we were sitting there one night and I'd written some stories for George for Geo. And uh, I just love Geo death, but <clears throat> and uh, they got posted out on the internet and stuff like that. And they were just they were very popular. I mean, you got thousands of hits, you know, these silly stories. And I'm like, they're just stories, man. It's just, you know, it just stuff that happened to us. And so George is really pressing me to write. He's like, hey, we got enough stuff to write a book. <clears throat> and at the time, George was writing his book, Brothers in the Cloth. Very, very good book. Well, he quit writing. He had like two chapters left. He quit to help me. So, and we wrote our book, my book, in 90 days. And it was, manuscript was finished. But she, we were sitting there one night. She looked at me. She goes, hey, here's how I want you to think about this. This is your legacy. This is your story. Write this for your kids and your grandkids. Mm. Well, I could grasp that. Mm. I said, okay. And the next day I started writing. And yeah, now we have Death Waits in the Dark. <laughs> that, that is, we, we haven't named it, but that is your book. So Death Waits in the Dark. And, and it's selling well. I think it's got good reviews. Uh, it seems, seems to be well received. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I self-published it and... <laughs> Everybody told me, like, dude, you're crazy, man. I was like, no, because, again, I studied and I did research and I interviewed three different publishers and I'd interview these editors. Well, come to find out, these people keep 80% of your royalties. Mm. I said, that's that's not what I want to do. My intent for one of the reasons for writing this book, I donate 100% of my proceeds, 100%. To date, almost $50,000 I've donated to nonprofits to help veterans, first responders, and their families. And I didn't want a publisher keeping 80% of my of the money. <laughs> I wanted to give that to do good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I kind of went through that. And we, you know, of course, if I'd have had a publisher, then, you know, it would have 
gotten out faster and, you know, whatever, but Hey, good old Amazon is, you know, I've got it on of course, paperback and audible and, uh, and Kindle. Yeah. I partnered too with my daughter and another friend of ours. We wrote a children's book and it was published last June, July. It's called V is for veteran. It's an alphabet book. Oh, cool. Yeah. I was pretty, I'm excited about that. So, so you, you mentioned then the driving force to write this in as, as being something that your, your family could relate to that would sort of of leave behind your legacy in, in print. What do they think of that? What, what have your children said to you about it? Oh, they're very proud. Yeah. They, yes, sir. Yeah, they're proud. They're they're glad I did it. Happy I did it. Because a lot of it they didn't know. Because yeah. I you know, I never told them, never talked about it. And you know, and back to writing is, you know, so many military personnel are, you know, writing books and movies and you know, experts on this and that. And I, I just I just, you know, I wanted to hold true to that quiet professional. And I and I I fought over it with myself internally, you know, is this a right thing to do? Is this, and I prayed about it a bunch and yeah, God said, yes, do this. Mm. So that's, that's why I did it. And again, I think it's important for, you know, everybody for civilians to understand, you know, and it's, and I, and again, I, you know, I got a lot of dirty laundry out there that I didn't want the world, you know, world, to read about and, you know, my personal life and suicide and suicide attempt and drugs, alcohol, I've been there, done that, man, got all the t-shirts. But, you know, I got through it through my faith and, you know, and I talk about good friends that took their lives and I just, I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't understand it. You know, they say 22 veterans a day, but it's actually 26 veterans per day. They just redid some numbers, take their life. And, you know, the guys at our level, you know, I mean, highly intelligent, very smart human beings. They, you know, they have faith and why they do this, man. I just, I just, I just, if I ever figure it out though, I'll let the world know. <laughs> so, 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 so Gravy, just, just one last question then. What do you do these days? I, I noticed online you are, um, you have a, a school that teaches people to shoot from helicopters. That's pretty cool. Uh, you, yes. Are you still flying yourself? Uh, what are you? What do yes. you do to keep yourself busy other than writing bestsellers and children's books? Yeah, we. I fly for some organizations. We do helicopter hog hunts here in Texas, and we bring in vets from all over the country for two or three days, and we fly around and shoot pigs out of helicopters, and we fellowship, and yeah, it's it's medicine for everybody, mm. and yeah, the tribe gathers up and we have a small ranch here in Texas and we've got cattle and chickens. And so it's, there's always something on the place to be doing. And I just started making knives. That's something that I always wanted to do. And I just love it, man. It's just, it's medicinal for me and it's, it works my brain. It's the science of it. There's math, there's art, there's, um, yeah, there's, uh, I got a chef knife right here that I finished up a few, Oh, very nice. We could go. So that's Damascus. That's 320 layer. But yeah, I just, wow. it's cool, man. It's really cool. This is one I'm working on. It's ha- being hammer forged. So, wow. Yeah, it's in works. And yeah, I got some little fighters I 
my good friend, Bob Horgan, he was in Delta. He was killed in Iraq, but this is, I call this the mini Bob for Bob Horgan's legacy, but this is kind of a copy of his, of the Horgan fighter and his brother, John Horgan customized and I worked with John and yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun and I really enjoy it. And, uh, yeah. So, yep. They're on the website. Books are on the website, deathweightsinthedark.com, uh, Facebook, Deathweights in the Dark, Instagram. Yeah, you can you can find me. I'm out there. Well, we'll make sure the links are in the description. But, um, Gravy, it's really been amazing listening to you tell your story. Um, thank you very much for being so generous with your time and uh, for oh, sharing that with us. Um, well, thank um, you. Maybe, maybe at some point in the future we have to get you back on to talk about flying in Korea. Yeah, that'd be fun. It'd <laughs> be fun. Thanks so I'm much, sure. Greg. Well, it's a pleasure and honor. So thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe. And if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.